earlier this week. You lay me down in green pastures. You lead me beside quiet waters. You restore my soul. It was Sophia, and she was practicing her memory verse in the, uh, the bathroom before going to bed. But I didn't need to tell you the guys that it was a memory verse, did I? Because probably most of you automatically recognized it, and you probably could have even, some of you would have named the psalm for me. Some of you potentially would have even been able to recite the whole psalm for me. And uh, the psalms have a good way of getting into our heart. Um, they have a perennial attraction for us. They're simple, they're poetic, they're largely easily understood. And these emotive songs help us to know, as emotive beings, how to relate to our emotive creator as we walk through the different seasons of life. The Psalms have historically featured very heavily in the worship and liturgy for the, of the people of God for, for thousands of years. And to help us better understand them and utilise them, we're actually hoping that over the coming months we might be able to, on a Sunday here or a Sunday there, we might be able to sprinkle some psalms into the preaching and we might be able to look at a different spectrum of the variety that we find within the psalms. A fortnight ago, uh, Diego preached through Psalm 1 and I hope that as you left church that day, your heart was enlarged and was, was bursting with uh, praise, thinking about the blessing that we have in Christ. Today's psalm has uh, a very different feel, and um, coming into church this morning and, and reflecting on it, I'd identified that, you know, psalms of lament are something that we want to cover when we're preaching through the psalms. Uh, they make up about a third of the psalms. Um, and then I, I walked into church this morning and it was a beautiful sunny day and, and the whole of Toowoomba is erupting with joy and flowers and a number of the women are coming in with, with flowered wreaths in their hair, you know, the, uh, I guess a reminder of the beauty with which God graces this place. And I thought to myself, oh, this is a really bad choice. And then, then I said to myself, oh, and we're, and we're welcoming Ian into eldership <laughs> and my heart is leaping for joy and I'm preaching on Psalm 88. Um, but be it as it is, um, I think it's a really good opportunity for us to look at this psalm. I think there is a lot in this psalm that we can unpack and that we can apply to our lives today. <clears throat> I pray that should we have the opportunity to work through the psalms, we might learn as the people of God, we might learn how to mourn, how to worship, how to repent, how to be thankful, how to see the hand of God in history and nature, and importantly, how to rejoice. Let's pray before we start. Father, you know that in our weakness, we struggle with pain and suffering. I thank you that you give us your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that you might help me to handle correctly your word this morning. And we pray that you might ready our hearts to receive. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you that you promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. How are you feeling this morning? Perhaps the floral wreaths don't quite mirror the, the affect of your heart. Um, perhaps they do, and fantastic, praise be to the Lord. As I dropped the kids at school this week, I hopped out of the car and the sun was on my back and I looked up and there was not a cloud in the sky and, and having a look around the hills out at Glenvale, everything was green from the recent rains. And I thought to myself, oh Lord, you have laid me down in green pastures. But that is not 
the ubiquitous Christian experience, is it? I'm, I'm sure we all wish it was, but no, God does lead us through different seasons in life. And so in Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. But in Psalm 88, you have put me in the depths of the pit. In Psalm 23, he leads me beside still waters. In Psalm 88, you overwhelm me with all your waves. In Psalm 23, he restores my soul. In Psalm 88, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? In Psalm 23, he has power over his enemies. In Psalm 88, his very friends seem to have become his enemies. In Psalm 23, his head is anointed with oil. In Psalm 88, his head is anointed with wrath. In Psalm 23, he is confident for the future and for eternity. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yet here in Psalm 88, he expects death and he contemplates a meaningless eternity in Sheol. The psalm then climaxes with this final verse. In the ESV it reads, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or in the NIV, the darkness is my closest friend. The Hebrew construction literally finishes, my acquaintance's darkness. And while capturing the nuance of this construction may prove somewhat problematic for the translators, the word order nevertheless crystallizes the tone of the psalm with perfect clarity. The final word then, the key note, not just for that verse, but for the psalm, darkness. How do you, how do you as a child of God, how do you as one who walks in the light relate to your father the one who dwells in unapproachable light, when you yourself find yourself surrounded by darkness? Is this even possible? Is it legitimate for you to have despair in your soul? Doesn't faith triumph? Isn't, isn't the Christian always happy? Today I want to explore three concepts arising from this psalm. Number one, the child of light in the jaws of darkness Number two, the child of light confronting the darkness. And number three, the light shines in the darkness. The child of light in the jaws of darkness. I want to acknowledge that we all have, um, we've got all sorts of people gathered here this morning. For some of you, perhaps your emotions are like the flower beds in Toowoomba. You're, you're feeling warm, you're feeling colourful, you're erupting to meet the morning light. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. But then for others, when I mentioned the word darkness, perhaps it struck a chord. I have to be careful here. I'm not using the word darkness as a metaphor to quantify morality or the lack thereof, but as a metaphor of despair and the dejection of the soul. Jesus promised us tribulations, and perhaps you've had a fair few of late. There are times when the clouds gather, and worse still, there are times when the night falls. So is it then legitimate for you to have despair in your soul, to feel dejected, crushed, and unhappy? 
the first question we need to ask is, do Christians suffer? Uh, It seems a little bit ironic that we have to ask that question, uh, but there are some who claim to the contrary, who claim that, no, we, we do not. Um, you know, we are, we are more than victors in Christ and this life will be a piece of cake. Um, they say this despite all evidence to the contrary. Christians still get sick, Christians still get cancer, Christians still have relationship troubles, lose jobs, struggle, ultimately die. I trust I don't have to labour the point today, so we won't spend too much time on it, but yes, Christians do suffer. From your own experiences, I'm sure that you have found this to be self-evidently true. Each one of us, I'm sure, despite our faith, or perhaps even because of our faith, has encountered suffering and journeyed through many a valley. And doesn't the Bible tell us so? Numerous occasions. We could, we could recount many this morning. Um, I was struck by my morning readings this week. Uh, in Ezekiel 9, I read, God tells his angel to pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan. And it turns out that these are God's chosen ones. It is not the men who are content and happy and full of festivity, but it is the men who are groaning and mourning over the destruction of Israel, over the moral decay that they see. Your zeal for the Lord at times increases the mourning and the pain within your own heart. Yes, the people of God suffer. Your experience suggests it. The Bible teaches it, and this psalm here affirms it. The psalm is attributed to Heman, the Ezraite, of the sons of Korah, and he begins, O Lord, literally, O Yahweh, that is, the God of Israel, O Lord, God of my salvation. Heman is a worshipper of the true God, and he is suffering. It's possible that Heman is not only a worshipper of the true God, it's possible that Heman is actually the same Heman who served as one of David's three chief musicians. Both are musical and both are named Heman and both are of the, of the sons of Korah. Um, if that's the case, Heman not only is a worshipper of God, he at times has led the entire nation in worship to Yahweh. And so yes, he follows the Lord and yes, he suffers. The people of God do suffer. And then we look at the psalm and we say, and how great is his suffering. Reading from verse 3 to verse 7. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who remember no more. Sorry, whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. His suffering is intractable. It's been present since his youth. Since his youth. It's inescapable. He's shut in. It's isolating. His friends have deserted him. And perhaps what we see most importantly is that his suffering is not merely external ailments, external hardships, easily endured by the one who has thick skin, but his sufferings pierce him to the very depths of his being, and so he cries out, my soul, my very soul is full of trouble. Do Christians suffer? Yes, we do. Do we feel it? Yes, we do. Are we more than conquerors in Christ? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely we are. Do the riches and 
infinity of our inheritance in Christ so pale our present tribulations that they should be considered as nothing on the balance? Yes. And is it true that from the perspective of eternity, our sufferings are but an unmeasurably brief moment? Yes. But it is equally true that I habitually fail to attain to the perspective of eternity. But God, who is outside time, does not fail to have compassion on us who struggle as we walk through this life. We read in Psalm 30, and Psalm 30 has a much different feel. It is written by someone who has now experienced deliverance from their ailments. O Lord, you have brought, my, uh, brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And then a little later, skipping down to verse 8, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. But in as much as there was or is a night, there was morning, even if just for a time. The soul doesn't hibernate through those cold, dark hours of the night, but rather it waits restlessly, painfully for the morning light. And for the pilgrim, who waits for the morning light, though he see not a hue of it on the horizon. God is not distant, but he knows your plight. He has compassion, and we shall see in due course, he even meets you there in that hour. Moving to our second point then, the child of light confronting the darkness. If we affirm that, yes, the child of light is still preyed upon by the jaws of darkness... How then are we to respond to such a beastly onslaught? There is a lesson in this psalm, both in terms of how we do and how we don't relate to God during such times. Let's return to the opening verse. O Lord, God of my salvation. From the first verse we see that the follower of God approaches afflictions with faith. We all face afflictions but we have a choice about how we face afflictions. Heman, he knows that God is both present and able to help. First, he says, I cry out day and night before you. And at this point, we need to make uh, a sharp distinction. You see, not all who cry out to God cry out in faith. And so the old joke about the atheist who's going hiking in the woods and he meets a large hungry bear, he looks to the left and looks to the right and there's nowhere to run and there's no escape, And suddenly he cries out, Oh God, if you're really there, please make this bear a Christian. If you haven't heard the punchline, ask me afterwards. But the point is that in the time of distress, even the atheist might call out to God. And so frequently he does, so frequently that, Oh God, has become something of street slang for it's hopeless. When the man, when the faithless man cries out, Oh God, he's he's expressing his anticipation that he is doomed. When the man of faith cries out, O God, he's expressing his anticipation that he is saved. When the faithless man cries out, O God, and he doesn't hear a response, he gives up. He says, well, it was worth a try, but I didn't really believe anyway. But the man of faith, he cries out, O God, and he continues to cry out, O God, by day and by night as he waits for God, because he knows God. He knows Yahweh, the God of his salvation. There are different ways that we can approach suffering. 
And so we have him and the psalmist, the exact nature of his afflictions, we do not know. But what statements of faith he has. First he says, as we saw, I cry out day and night before you. And then he says, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. So the psalmist cries out in faith, in the power of God. But this then raises more questions. God, this hurts. God, I'm suffering. God, how long? And if you believe that God has the power to save you, you likewise believe that he has chosen not to, at least not yet. And we can be tempted to ask the question, in that dark and painful hour, we can be tempted to ask the question, God, are you, are you really good? But note, Heman doesn't even go there. He doesn't ask it. He is under no illusions as to the power and potency of God. He knows that God is in control of his situation. He acknowledges that his sufferings have been permitted, even caused by God. As you read through the psalm, you read, You have put me in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm. You have caused. You have made. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And again, your wrath. And finally, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Heman doesn't have a small God. He doesn't think that he is the victim of a cruel and faceless universe, a powerful clock, a, a faceless force. Heman knows that God is in control of the universe, and Heman knows that God is in control of his circumstances. But the psalmist does not say, How dare you, God? You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Just, you have caused my friend and beloved to shun me. Full stop. To say anything less could be to insult God's control. To say anything more would be to insult his character. So first he says, I cry out day and night before you. And second he says, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. And finally he says, moving down to verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes before you. Haman is a man of faith, and he's going to cry out to God, the God of his salvation, and he is going to keep crying out to God. There is a remarkable parallel here between the psalmist Haman and the character Job. Both acknowledge the sovereignty of God over their suffering. Both draw near the pit and struggle with depression and deep grief. But both maintain an affection towards their creator. And this is the pattern that we as God's children should emulate. For perhaps the last uh, 10, 15, maybe 20 years, I'm not sure, there's been a rather novel thought that's been expressed at times uh, amongst uh, Christians. And it seems somewhat a strange thought to me, and I'm unaware if it's actually come up at other times in church history. Um, There's nothing new under the sun. but, But the thought goes something like this. It is okay to be angry with God. Express yourself, go for it, you know, curse him. Now, if this is so, and it certainly is not, if this is so, it seems quite interesting in this psalm, which expresses the deepest tragedy and grief, we find nothing of anger in heaven towards his creator. Indeed, when we look at verses 10 through to 12, 
The psalmist's very concern about his possible imminent demise arises in fact from the fear that death will cut him off from singing the praises of God. He's worried that he won't be able to declare God's steadfast love from the grave nor his faithfulness from Abaddon. He will no longer know God's wonders, so he thinks, or his righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. Haman is not angry with God. Haman is grieved, he is depressed, he is hurting. But Haman isn't angry with God. He cries out, not against God, but to God. He is seeking God in this moment of pain. Think of the story of Job for a second. Satan wants Job to curse God. This is how the story begins. He asks God for permission to afflict Job, and God gives Satan permission to strip Job of all his possessions and relationships. And so Job does, with one exception. What is the one thing that Satan does not take from Job at that time? He doesn't take his wife. And you think, well, this is a rather curious omission for Satan. This is Job's wife, this is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh but he doesn't take Job's wife. And we see later in the story that he has a purpose in doing so. Satan had hoped that Job would curse God and Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Satan tries a second time and he inflicts Job's very flesh with pain and suffering. Job gets down in the ashes and he scrapes himself with with broken pottery in agony. And in that moment, in comes his wife. And it's as though she becomes the very mouthpiece for Satan. And she says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job replies, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And that's the correct response there. This isn't supposed to be easy, but this is the example that we're supposed to emulate. As you read through the book of Job, Job struggles. He struggles a lot. He questions, he questions his suffering. He questions the justice. But he never turns around and curses God to his face and eyes. So guard your hearts and pray that God will guard your hearts because it is difficult in the face of suffering. I trust no one has ever said to you as Job's wife said to him, but keep in mind that Satan knows how to shout, but he also knows how to whisper. And even his whisper is a lie and the quiet word that he says can be as destructive as the word he spoke in the Garden of Eden. Think of the psalmist Heman. Think of how he endures his suffering yet maintains his affection and worship to God. Think of how often we are tempted to do otherwise. It may not be as overt as the word from Job's wife, but be wary also of the whisper of discontent that might lodge in your soul and cry out not to God, but against God. This God thing is costing you too much, the voice says. Tell him to give you a break, it's too heavy. This discipleship thing, it's such a burden. Tell God he's being unreasonable. The voice continues. This daily cross thing, so unnecessary. 
I don't think it's good for your mental health. It's wearing you out. Just tell God no. Tell him no. Tell him this is unacceptable. Tell him what you really think. Hopefully what we really think is worship towards God. And Job says, Though he slay me, yet shall I trust in him. In your grief, guard your heart. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. You weren't made to relate to God on your own terms and you weren't made to express anger towards God and to curse him. You were made to worship God. In that hour of darkness when oppression is heavy upon your soul, bring your grief before him, bring your fears before him, bring your loneliness, bring your pain, bring your sadness, but bring not your anger and your cursing. Remember that he is your passionate redeemer and as we shall soon consider, he meets us in that very hour. Before we move on to our final point, a point that I believe is appropriate to the broader biblical context of this psalm, it's worthwhile exploring an apparent paradox to help the final point make sense in light of the former two points. The question we ask is, is this psalm actually a psalm of lament or is it a psalm of repentance? We've said so far that God's people will encounter hardship, sometimes in spite of their righteousness, sometimes even because of their righteousness. We've said that God understands our suffering and in part he has given us the Psalms of Lament to help us understand our suffering and to lead us through them. We can assume that this psalm finds appropriate expression on the lips of the saints as they journey through a harsh and hostile world, as they experience injustice and pain. When the Apostle Paul writes, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself we assume that his heart resonated more with Psalm 88 and the longings therein rather than with the contentment in Psalm 23. And God has given us both for a reason. What we have not yet duly explored is what the psalmist twice alludes to, and that is the wrath of God in this situation. Reading verse 7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and from verse 16, Your wrath has swept over me. Have we got this psalm all wrong? God's wrath implies our sin, and our sin, psalms that focus on our sin and transgression, ultimately turn into a psalm of repentance rather than a psalm of lament. And yet nowhere here do we see a specific inciting sin that is mentioned to bring about this tragedy, similar in a sense to Job's situation. And the psalmist never employs the language of repentance in this situation. No, this psalm is rightly considered a psalm of lament. The primary focus is an outpouring of grief, a cry for help. It is rightly employed by those who suffer deep injustice as they journey through the harsh pages of this, of this world. And concerning injustice, the Old Testament builds a category for the righteous sufferer, the one who suffers irrespective of their own transgressions or guilt. Note that I didn't say they didn't have any transgressions and guilt, um, but irrespective in a sense. Think of Abel, think of Jeremiah, think even of Lot, it's a little bit surprising for those who know his story well, but in 2 Peter 2.8, uh, Peter mentions that this righteous man was tormented in his soul by the unrighteousness that surrounded him. And so is Heman suffering for his sins, or is he suffering in innocence? I'd like to say this morning that it's certainly the former, but possibly the latter as well, if that's not a contraindication, sorry, contradiction. Uh, hypothetically speaking, Let's say you lose your job tomorrow because you failed to address a work colleague by their chosen pronoun. You could pray, rightly so, David's lament in Psalm 7. 
If I have repaid my ally with evil or without, uh, or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Uh, the hypothetical is that he hasn't done this. Then we skip to verse 8. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. And assuming then that perhaps by some miraculous event you actually get your old job back, well, we'd probably be praying Psalm 18 with you in rejoicing. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me. These are both Psalms of David, and uh, we need to recognise that um, David was under no illusion. When we talk about, when we talk about the, the Old Testament context for uh, people of righteousness, David serves as a very um, interesting example. And we all, um, most of us would be aware of, of his many sins and his many shortcomings. Um, Psalm 18 is actually written at the end of his life after he's clocked up uh, a fair amount of um, muck. In Psalm 143, he writes, In your faithfulness and righteousness come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. These are all Psalms of David, and uh, it helps to build a little bit of a picture. At other times in the same Psalm, David will both describe uh, unjustly suffering at the hands of his enemies, yet being guilty and deserving of punishment before his God. And the two are not mutually exclusive. All this is to say that one can be innocent against one's neighbour, yet guilty against God. And one can suffer for actions of righteousness, yet as we all know, we are all, by our actions unrighteous, by Christ's blood counted righteous. So Psalm 88 is a lament and can be appropriately utilised as a psalm of lament. It can be applied to a variety of situations, including suffering for righteousness' sake. We don't need to merely employ it as a psalm of repentance. Um, the mention of the wrath of God is not out of place, but it alludes to the fact we all universally were under the wrath of God. No one living is righteous before him, as David says. And this adds a further consideration to the function of this psalm within the larger body of Scripture and an important dimension to our understanding of suffering as we will now move on to explore. The light shines in the darkness. How does this psalm fit in with the larger body of Scripture? Dare I say it, if this psalm was all you had, if you wanted to build your theology, your belief, your religion from this psalm, you would end up with a very truncated gospel. It would read something along the lines of, we are all in desperate need of a saviour, period. And technically, that's no gospel at all because gospel means good news. But this psalm does contribute to our soteriology, to our doctrine of salvation. We're not disposed to appreciate, far less seek a saviour unless we appreciate our need of salvation. And to that need, this psalm gives a megaphone. Heman, it would seem, is a pious kind of chap. He desperately seeks God in his hour of need. But this psalm gives us a graphic portrayal of Romans 3.23, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Ephesians 2.3 puts it this way, we were by nature children of wrath. And that is Heman in this situation. Whatever sort of life Heman has lived, and we can't say, whatever sort of life he has lived, he can rightly say, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Your wrath has swept over me and your dreadful assaults destroy me. There is no injustice in God. And we glimpse in this psalm at least a little bit of what the wrath of God looks like. It looks like weakness. I suffer your terrors, I am helpless, he says. It looks like trouble. My soul is full of it, the psalmist says. It looks like abandonment. You have caused my companions to shun me, verse 8. It looks like death. It looks like darkness. And ultimately, it looks like abandonment from God himself. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Consider the afflictions in this psalm. Do you see it now? This psalm is more than just a violin for us to play when we feel dejected. It is a cry for a saviour to spare us from the wrath of God. Who will stand in our place, we ask? Who will stand in our place of weakness? And we read in Isaiah of one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Who will stand in our place of trouble? And we read further in Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Who will suffer abandonment for us? And we remember that all his friends deserted him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who will suffer darkness? Who will suffer death? Who will stand in our place? Who will suffer even abandonment from God the Father himself? And we read in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 27, starting at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Skipping down to verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus is the one who takes our weakness. Jesus is the one who takes our, our troubles. Jesus is the one who takes our abandonment. He's the one who suffers the death and the darkness, the separation from God. In this psalm, we see something of the agony of bearing the wrath of God, and in the gospel, we see Jesus, our perfect substitution. And while this psalm ends in darkness, it yearns for the coming of the light. And years later, in the fullness of time, God answers the yearnings of this psalm. Reading John chapter 1, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In concluding then, where do we go from here? Paul in Acts 14 warns the new converts, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If the road you travel is not difficult, I'd be somewhat concerned. 
Again, Jesus said, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. But no, many of you know full well what griefs can afflict the path of the pilgrim. God knows that you go through these times. And when you do, remember that among other things, he has given you the Psalms. As we said, approximately a third of these Psalms have have strong, if not predominant, elements of lament. And these Psalms minister powerfully to our souls at such times. If you bring deep struggles with you this morning, stories of grief and pain and loss, this psalm is for you. God is not ignorant of your situation. We know that God, as we read in the book of Hebrews, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It is no surprise then that we should find psalms that understand our grief and resonate with our emotions. Above these and of great importance though, these psalms don't merely resonate with our experience. Our great need is not just to be understood or to find an avenue for expression. There are plenty of avenues for such in this world and none of them lead to healing, none to life, none to light. But these psalms, in the words of the psalmist, uh, Psalm 61, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. If you want to escape from the mire, from the pit of despair, in your grief turn to the Lord, seek him in his psalms, Seek him in his word, and you will find solid ground for your feet. Now, if you came to church this morning, and for you the flowers are blooming, and your heart is rejoicing, uh, praise the Lord, you know, rejoice in that. If you woke this morning in a green pasture, the Lord's countenance inclining favorably towards you. If you feel your boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places, and the Lord's face shines upon you, Give thanks to the Lord. I don't want to turn your mood upside down. Uh, but this psalm is for you today as well, and importantly so. A theology of suffering, we certainly haven't touched on such today, we've just mentioned a word or two, but a theology of suffering is a bit like an instruction manual for a parachute. It's easier to read it before you're plummeting towards the earth. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? I thank the Lord that we all know uh, what, I assume we all know what eternity will bring. I thank the Lord that, that, that eternity is bright. But in this life we will have troubles. And only the Lord knows what tomorrow will bring. Let us prepare ourselves for the day of calamity. Let's not take Paul's warnings lightly. Let's prepare ourselves so that when it comes we might not be surprised or even angry, but we might be able to, in the words of Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Let us get ourselves ready to cry out to God in faith. Not just to cry out to God and certainly not to cry against God, but to cry out to him in faith. Too often we're like Jonah. We have a shrub and it dies and we get angry against the Lord. It's better to be like Job. He loses everything and yet he maintains affection for his saviour. Better still be like Jesus In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Finally today, we've looked at one of, I need to say, we've looked at one of the saddest psalms in the Bible. Of the 50 or so psalms of lament, uh, with three exceptions, this one being one of them, they all describe the problem, describe the pain, often recall God's past faithfulness, and in all of them, with these three with with the exception of three psalms, they always end in a final declaration of praise to God, either 
having received deliverance or in anticipation of receiving deliverance. What do we do with a psalm that ends in darkness? It teaches us two things. Firstly, it teaches us that God is aware of our struggles as we yearn for the morning light. He might be outside of time. It might be but a moment for him, but he sympathises with us and he knows our struggle. He is aware of our minute-by-minute agony. Not a minute goes by that he doesn't see. Secondly, it reminds us, importantly so, of the sheer darkness that, that engulfs us until we find deliverance in Christ. The wrath of God is not lukewarm. It is not something that we can bear. It is not something to trivialise. It's not something to chance. An eternity without God has not the glimmer of light on its horizon. In finishing today, um, I'll just say this finally. If for you, you don't know what eternity holds, if for you, you haven't yet made your peace with God, you haven't learnt to cry out to him in faith, wait no longer. Talk to someone after the service. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of life. Join me now in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you are the giver of joy. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. We thank you, Lord, for all the many, many blessings that you bring into our lives. Help us to count our blessings. But Lord, in the hour of darkness, help us not to despair. Help us not to rage against you. Help us not to lose faith, but help us to adopt the position of faith that cries out to you and cries out again, continues to hope in you, though everything looked dark, waits for you and waits patiently. Thank you that you see us in our troubles. Thank you that you deliver us from our troubles. Thank you that you're not unaware of our troubles. Thank you that the Lord Jesus came and he walked on this earth. He experienced our troubles and he knows them full well. He won for us salvation. And thank you that ultimately there is a future that is bright and full of light for us should we trust in you. Amen.